Hello and welcome to another episode of Cosmic Echo, a Taylor podcast. This podcast explores a strange and bizarre phenomenon that happens in our lives when we sleep in altered states. In this episode, we speak with Rory Spowers, who is the ecological writer, filmmaker, and author. He is the founder of The Web of Hope, a UK charity and ecological education resource. And also, he is the editor of DMT Dialogues, and that's why we're speaking to him today. Um, where we talk about DMT and individuals that are featured in his book um, that talk about DMT as well. If you enjoy this episode of Cosmic Echo and would like to learn more about Rory Spowers and his work, you can visit our website at tailleaders.com backslash podcast. Additionally, you can support this podcast by donating on our donation page located at the same website. Well, without further ado, let's get to the interview. So, Rory, um, thanks for spending time with me again. And... Um, and with our listeners, and uh, you have excellent knowledge on DMT, and you've done a lot of research in the area. So if you can give me a little bit of background about yourself, um, how you got interested in DMT, and the research behind that, and just an overview of your um, personal um, reasons for getting into this. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Lee, for, for having me on. Um, yes, I... I've had a keen interest in in psychedelics at altered states, I suppose, ever since a young age and the mystical experience generally. Um, My background professionally before getting active in this area until a few years ago was primarily in the sort of ecological environmental arena. And I wrote books and campaigned and went to live in Sri Lanka for a few years to try and walk the talk. Um, so one area that's always sort of really been a big interest to me is the, the ability for the psychedelic experience to catalyze what the biologist E.O. Wilson called biophilia, which is this sort of awakening, of this recognition of our innate or inherent connection to the natural world. Um, and I um, alluded to that in, in one of my books, actually, uh, 15 years ago, but I remember being being reviewed at the time and being sort of ridiculed about it by somebody called Bjorn Lomborg, who wrote a book called The Skeptical Environmentalist. I don't know if you remember. This was a very controversial book that came out about the same time. But I'm very gratified now, 15 or more years later, to see you know, a number of research projects that confirm uh, that this is the case. Um, so... I, and I think you know this, this this conceptual separation between us and the natural world is is something that we urgently urgently need to address if we're going to have any hope of of dealing with the ecological crisis. Um, I'm also deeply interested in the other sort of medicinal therapeutic benefits of of psychedelic medicines. You know what's coming out from you know, psilocybin research in the U.S. at John Hopkins University recently, but also. Um, very interested in microdosing studies, MDMA and ayahuasca being used to treat um, uh, PTSD. And I suppose that the DMT researching in distinction from those is, is, is probably more addressing a sort of metaphysical or philosophical question. Um, that's DMT taken out of the context of ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is obviously a sort of has a DMT component, but is sort of extrapolated into this this long journey, which obviously has tremendous psychotherapeutic potential. I think that, I mean, the DMT experience being so brief uh, and so astonishing and so awesome um, <clears throat> is often quite hard for anybody to come back with anything sort of very sort of you know, you know meaningful uh, beyond having had their sort of worldview <laughs> shattered. Yeah. So. Um, I suppose that's what's you know, propelling this notion of these extended state infusion experiments, which are being um, investigated by the Imperial uh, team in the UK, but also now in the US, there's also projects underway to, to do this. And this was precipitated by Andrew Gallimore, who came to our <clears throat> conference at Terringham three years ago, from which this book was 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 drawn. So the, the book we just published, GMT Dialogues, was really the transcripts of those presentations from our first conference three years ago. Um, and Andrew Gallimore was, yes, one of the first people, I think, in conjunction with Rich Strassman, who famously wrote the, the, the DMT Spirit Molecule book, but he was giving people intravenous one-off mm, yes. injections. The idea with the extended state infusion is that you can really calibrate the dose so carefully that you keep people in this suspended state 
for a prolonged period of time um, on, in the hope that you know, they might be able to establish some level of communication with entities encountered in that space and possibly you know, bring back some meaningful data. And initial sort of experiments in this area you know, seem, to, seem to validate that. Um, and there's no doubt that the DMT experience on its own can um, have a very profound effect on people's worldview and their perception of reality. It does just open this door to to um, the recognition that there might be sort of alternate parallel universes um, coexisting with this one. And that, therefore, you know, has relevance to um, the multiverse or M-theory or string theory. And we've had astrophysicists and cosmologists attending these events as well. So I think on a you know, metaphysical and philosophical sort of level, I'm fascinated by it. I'm particularly fascinated by the notion that it might shed light on whether consciousness is indeed primary rather than secondary. I think that in a way that's probably the great question of our times and could in turn have a massive impact on the way we look at our place in the universe and the way we deal with our politics and our economics and, and the rest of it. If consciousness is something that we are within rather than something manufactured as an epiphenomenon of the brain, as it were, you know, just through complex neuronal firing, then I think that has profound implications for everything. Yeah. Um, so, and that, of course, is, you know, validates the so-called perennial philosophy that Aldous Huxley famously summarized in his, his book and has been the sort of basis of all the mystical and religious traditions throughout time. So I think, yeah, the exciting thing possibly is science now converging on that truth. Um, and um, so that's, yeah, a, a keen area of interest for me. <laughs> nice. Um, great intro, man. Um, so I guess a study of mine, a personal study of mine, is trying to figure out why um, people like yourself are so interested in this subject. What experiences did you have that kind of um, initiated your dive into psychedelics, first of all? And then, you know, like what got you so interested in DMT specifically that you kind of um, dedicated a good portion to your, of your life to understanding this topic as well as an environment. So that's really what I'm interested in about yourself. Yeah, um, I, as I say, I was always intrigued by, by altered states and the sort of mystical vision. And I know it's been a sort of ongoing debate ever since the sort of era of, of, of Huxley and others as to whether the the mystic vision as encountered under, under psychedelics is is in any way more or less valid than, than a mystical experience that's seemingly sort of not prompted by an external catalyst. Um, and I think, you know, overall, the, the evidence seems to suggest that, you know, physiologically and neurologically, they are very similar experiences. And I think those of us who are lucky enough to have a profound mystical experience without an external catalyst, that's an incredible thing. And it probably happens to more people, especially in childhood than we might normally recognize. And those experiences are often disregarded as some kind of sort of, yeah, ab aberrant kind of, um, you know, mis you know, dysfunction of sort of, you know, normal neurochemistry um, because our culture doesn't really integrate those experiences as being as being valid. Um, I think given our current sort of global predicament, the more people that have that sort of experience, what I was just talking about with the biophiliac kind of response and a change of attitude towards nature is, is obviously of, of overwhelming importance. Um, so... I think yeah, I've always that that that, that that's a keen interest to me, and I I, I think I also have I've I've had a, a spiritual um, uh, aspect to my life uh, ever since I was a teenager, and um, continue to do so. And I think what's exciting at the moment is people see the possibility for psychedelic experience to to sit very comfortably with that um, and responsible psychedelic use can go very much in tandem with a spiritual practice um the the work that i've been doing with turingham initiative over the last few years hasn't exclusively focused on dmt we've just had our third symposium around this area and my colleague anton bilton who's whose home we we 
in the UK, we started this initiative with Terringham Hall, which he subsequently sold at the end of last year. But over the three years, we were we were running events there. Many of the events were overtly just purely ecologically orientated or consciousness orientated. Um, quite a few of them had an entheogenic uh, component, you know, looking at the role of psychedelic medicines, but not exclusively DMT or ayahuasca. You know, also uh, very interested in all sorts of other sacred and psychoactive plants, but also the possibility of compounds like MDMA to treat um, PTSD or treatment-resistant PTSD. Um, and so it, 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 it hasn't been exclusively in, in that arena. I think DNT, uh, yeah, is, is, I mean, there, there is no more phenomenal experience, more astounding than, than that, as far as I can see. Um, and I think when he, when within the ayahuasca brew and given this sort of extraordinary uh, extended journey, uh, then it um, becomes you know, a different thing altogether. Um, so I don't know. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm always interested in people's personal type of like experiences that drove them into like um, having a lifelong, you know, determination to research these things. So like uh, for myself, I've, I took ayahuasca um, trying to research dreams and then next thing you know, I'm doing a podcast, you know, a couple of years later. So, um, you know, there's this like um, these things kind of drive people to do certain things. But then some people tend to kind of fall, fall off that train. You know, they they take it. They have an experience once and then and that's kind of it or they do it as a hobby, kind of keep it hush hush quiet, you know, very rare for people to kind of go out of the way to um, be open to talk about these experiences or to talk about to have such a passion in them that they want to kind of determine their life based off of that experience. So it's, it's interesting to speak to you about that, you know, or people like yourself that have really dedicated a good portion of their life to these experiences. Yes. And I think, you know, you touched on some interesting aspects there. I, I've personally, I sort of had my, my time over a period of, sort of three or four years with, with ayahuasca where I felt it, I was getting tremendous benefits from it. And uh, it really was um, a very sort of therapeutic, psychological sort of healing process. But it definitely then got to a point where I felt like I wasn't, I'd sort of got what I needed and that I had to go away and sort of work on that. Um, and so I did sort of hang up my boots, uh, well, have hung up my boots, as it were, for for a while now. And and actually, you know, the 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 integration or the real sort of learning from these experiences has always come in the months or weeks following the actual event. I can't say I've ever had particularly sort of massively illuminating insights within the experience itself, but then there've been incredible sort of penny drop moments that have come later. Um, I think Alan Watts famous, you know, I loved one of his, you know, well, I love many things Alan Watts <laughs> said, but one thing there was the psychedelic experiences. It, psychedelics are like a boat you use to cross the river. Once you're on the other side, the journey continues by foot. And I think, yeah, the same could be said for with any spiritual teaching or, you know, any kind of technique, formula, practice, whatever. It's very easy for us to get so attached to the teaching the practice whatever it may be failing to recognize that what it's pointing to uh is 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 something beyond that and that you know often the the real sort of you know enlightenment comes when when that that is seen as just the conceptual sort of pointer towards the, the the truth that underlies it and i think yeah we all see this within these kind of circles um so one see, I, I, I spent a lot of time years ago in ashrams in India uh, or in sort of uh, yoga retreat situations. One, one encounters a lot of spiritualized egos <laughs> along the process. And I think one also encounters a lot of that within the sort of the medicine circle world as well. But it, I'm not trying to denigrate it. I think it, it's actually an implicit part of the spiritual journey in a way that there is a kind of sort of ego inflation process at the beginning 
um, people have a profound experience and it's a profound experience that's happened to me. And as a consequence, you know, um, the ego takes hold of that and it gets identified and attached to that and wants to sort of, you know, tell the world about it and or, or, and the rest of it. So, you, I mean, I have a great friend who I've worked with a, a, a lot over the last few years who's a great expert on this. And, you know, he's, he's of the opinion that ayahuasca is, is only sort of, only goes wrong in certain cases. There are obviously some people who probably shouldn't um, embark on the journey who've got sort of, you know, uh, bipolar disorders or, or, or you know, psychotic issues, you know, underlying issues, which, which might, you know, predispose them to having a negative experience. But also, you know, it can, in rare cases, trigger a slightly sort of messianic, hmm. evangelical kind of zeal in people that, that become sort of narcissistic. So I think this, yeah, that's a pitfall with, you know, people having illuminating experiences of any kind. Um, so, um, yeah, I think, yeah, is, is that yeah. helpful? Yeah. Um, I mean, did it kind of spark your, uh, involvement into, um, the environmental aspect of your research and your, um, your goals? Well, I think I had, I, I had a great interest in, in, I grew up in a, in an, in an environment where I was very active in nature as a, as a child. I did have, you know, as a child and a teenager, some experiences which, you know, were sort of deeply sort of connected with, with, with nature, um, like many people do. And I didn't have psychedelic experiences until later on, but they, they did sort of open that up. Um, but I was already a, a meditator and a key, keen interest in yoga and Eastern religion and the rest of it. Um, so they've been sort of mutually supportive. And actually, I, you know, the... the I did a, a big trip after I left university cycling the length of Africa. And that was really the, 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 the principal component in putting me on the sort of ecological kind of track. Um, so they've been, they've, they've, they've mutually sort of reinforced each other. I think that, you know, Michael Pollan's wonderful recent book called how to change your mind, which has obviously had a massive impact in the U S and is starting to sort of have an impact in Europe as well. I think he makes a very important point that, you know, the interesting thing is when we look back at all the things that the 60s counterculture sort of threw up and brought you know, to our attention, pretty much all of them have been integrated within mainstream society, you know, from yoga and mindfulness through to dietary stuff to you know, all sorts of civil rights and, 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 and uh, the rest of it. But the one component that we haven't managed to integrate is the psychedelic component that was arguably the catalyst for the whole lot. Yeah. Um, and so, but hopefully we're now in the process of doing that. And I think, you know, maybe it was necessary for there to have been a Leary or, you know, somebody of, of similar to, 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 to have kind of upset the, the, the establishment in the way that, it, and, and it, yeah, it is unfortunate these things got sort of buried away for, for 50 years. Um, but they're very much back in 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 the, in the spotlight now is, and and what is equally interesting is that the people who are sort of coming to it now are not your sort of stereotypical sort of psychonauts or somebody with interest in this area they come at their scientists who are seeing there's all this incredible buried data and research that was incredible you know showing incredible efficacy in treating things like addiction and depression and the rest of it um, and so they're, going, they're now; these people are now the ones responsible for bringing it back into 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 the research community, um, which is great to see. And I think you know it's sort of like the elephant in the room. I think you know the, the data is so overwhelming; it's so obvious that that these things do work when used appropriately and judiciously, and they work in a way that that, that other you know pharmaceutical medicines simply can't because they they actually go to the root causes of problems rather than just repressing symptoms. They allow people to readdress the trauma um, that may be uh, responsible for their PTSD or, or childhood trauma or whatever it may be. And so you have these extraordinary accounts of people literally sort of overcoming uh, you know, decades of depression or, or all sorts of issues almost in one or two sessions. Um, so the implications are obviously over, you know, enormous for, for, for humanity at large. And I think also, you know, the John Hopkins 
studies with psilocybin, you know, people terminally ill uh, patients, you know, with cancer, with, with terrible existential anxiety, losing the fear of death completely in just one or two sessions. I yeah. mean, this is this is absolutely remarkable. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, bring it on. It's it's pretty amazing that it's actually taking place right now, and you know, in, in my lifetime and yours too, and um, hopefully this time around, you know, it doesn't get messed up. And I don't think it's the scientists we have to really convince to uh, be accepting of these things. It's it's some of the other people, <laughs> unfortunately. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. But I do feel that it's you know, I mean, the medical marijuana uh, thing is sort of the tip of the iceberg. We do we're seeing some encouraging things happening around MDMA and psilocybin now um, in the US and I'm sure you know uh, the UK I notice is is now going to uh, uh, lift the, um, the, the the ban on medical marijuana over the, I think over the coming weeks even. Nice. Um, so uh, I mean even Rick Doblin who I just saw who's head of MAPS as I'm sure you know I just saw in New York over the Horizons conference, he's just been in China uh, talking to the Chinese government about you know, PTSD mm-hmm. and the, the role of MDMA there. The, there's active trials going on in Europe. I, you know, I think it's yes, there's going to be obviously all sorts of legislative hurdles to to overcome, um, but I think you know the, the weight of evidence is, of empirical evidence is so overwhelming. It's very hard uh, for it to be sort of knocked back in the box now. Um, like it was 50 years ago, and with something like you know, with 22 American soldiers committing suicide every day, with two, you know, nearly three million people in the U.S. suffering from PTSD, um, the, these are real major issues, and nothing else is working. Um, so um, I think you know it's time has come. Yeah. Um, so I, I would like to talk about some of your research on DMT and like um, what you're kind of like currently involved in in that area yes well i mean i've uh i've been running these putting together these events for the last three years we've done three uh three days symposia um around dmt research um and we work quite closely with the the team at imperial in the uk who've now got uh, government approval to, to to do dmt research um and we're looking at. I mean, I'm not. I'm not a scientist. I'm. I have a keen interest, and I've just sort of been, you know, coordinating the events. But um, David Luke, my co-editor of DNT Dialogues, could you know, expand much more extensively on this, uh, uh, as could Anton, probably, who's been much more closely involved. But I think there's already very promising data looking at things like uh, precognition and telepathy. Um, it'll be some time before they get to the extended state infusion testing. Yeah, it's probably another year or two away because there's all sorts of protocols that need to be sort of established first, you know, particularly around safety and the rest of it. But I think that you know the possibility for this research to really validate you know, non-local consciousness is um, is very real and 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 very exciting. Um, so. I think yeah, th- those implications are, are, are really important um, for our for our under- understanding. I, I I think that there's inevitably a very entrenched materialist reductionist agenda within the scientific community that's going to hold on fast. Um, and you know, two of the sort of main first speakers through the door at Terringham were Graham Hancock and Rupert Sheldrake, both of whom had their TED talks removed and banned because they spoke about non-local consciousness um and that was upsetting to the sort of reductionist materialist sort of you know uh, mindset and mainstream so um but i think it is being challenged from a number of quarters um eben alexander the neurosurgeon who uh, wrote a book called proof of heaven i think was a new york times bestseller about three years ago who had uh, a prolonged near-death experience and was in a coma Mm. and was a sort of staunch materialist reductionist beforehand. Um, he got up at Terry. I mean, he said he, he felt that, that, that within a few years it was going to be untenable 
for any scientist from any discipline to maintain that consciousness is purely generated by the brain because the weight of imminence from so many different disciplines was now was going to get so overwhelming. So I think we're, we're rapidly approaching a very interesting threshold. Um, again, I mean, Ilya Prigozhin, who is a Nobel Prize winning uh, Russian chemist, I think, you know, I think 20 years ago, singled this out as being the greatest cultural event of our age that mm. you know the world we see within and the world we see without are converging um and there's an enormous number of of, of quantum physicists who've been saying this for a long time um but you know neuroscientists uh, you know all sorts of people from different disciplines you know even astrophysicist uh bernard carr who was with us who, who worked with stephen hawkins for years um, so plenty of people now, you know, coming on board with that kind of perspective. So I, I, I really think that's, that's terribly exciting. Yeah. Um, so what does like TMT tell us about the consciousness? Um, what does it tell us about how the brain is, um, dealing with information? I mean, you, you described it, um, consciousness, not just being internal production, but an external one as well. Well, I think you know, obviously, from a from a you know, reductionist and materialist point of view, what is going on there is purely a sort of aberration of sort of neurochemistry. This is all just mad weirdness going on in your head, triggered by an overdose of a chemical that's that is also endogenous. I mean, that's the most extraordinary thing about DMT. You know, it's the only endogenous. Well, five MeO DMT is also a neurotransmitter. I think also produced in the body. Um, we've yet to really ascertain, you know, you know, some people think it's maintained by the gut. I think the notion that it's produced by the pineal gland has been sort of, you know, is, is unsubstantiated and was very speculative. Um, but it's certainly present in, the, you know, it's produced in the lungs, seemingly. It's, 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 it's in every living tissue where scientists have ever looked for it, and it's completely sort of abundant in nature. So, it, it, and it's, it's ancient. It's a very simple, as Dennis McKenna goes, it, you know, points out, yeah, this is this has been around for a long time, um, but I think you know that even just within one's own within ayahuasca circles, I think you know numerous people have had shared experiences within those kind of settings where they have gone to the same place as somebody else, met the same uh, entities or beings, or, or met each other. And that's not peculiar to DMT. I think, you know, people have similar experiences with ketamine. Um, people have similar experiences with, with other, you know, there's a fantastic account, I think, from Julian Palmer um, uh, in Australia, who um, who had a, a, an experience with other people where, under the influence of LSD, they saw a tree in front of them dematerialize, collapse into lots of little pieces, and then put itself back together. Yeah. Um, they all saw the same thing happen at the same time. I think those sort of things happen sort of quite regularly. And you know what we we've been debating a lot is with these kind of methodologies and ideas for experiments is to what extent one needs people who are sort of already sort of psychically attuned, and to what degree that attunement might affect. Yeah, outcome kind of the experiment, whereas in contrast to having completely sort of random strangers put together. Um, so I think, you know, Rupert Sheldrake's experiences around sort of telephone telepathy and all of these kind of things as well. Um, you know, the, 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 there are a number of, you know, and I, I was amazed, you know, how many of these sort of the things are going on, but seem to be sort of constantly disregarded by the mainstream scientific community. We have you know, in endless accounts of, of sort of non-local consciousness experiences. But uh, but alongside all sorts of other things that don't conveniently fit into the mainstream um, scientific paradigm, they are brushed aside as just being sort of, um, uh, you know, just spurious. I mean, I, in this area, I'm, I'm particularly interested in a, in a man called Bernardo Castro. I don't know if you've come across, no. who's a a really fascinating, um, you know, science, you know, philosopher, scientist, uh, a, a metaphysician. I, and he wrote a book called uh, "Why Materialism Is Baloney." Um, mm. uh, he's written a number of books, which 
really sort of in, in a very systematic and very intelligent way expose all sorts of holes within the sort of materialist agenda. And I I think, yeah, he's got a lot of really, really important things to say in this area. Um, and I, I mean, I love his analogy of, of, of that he uses that, that the sense of self is rather like a whirlpool in water. Um, and as yeah, as the sort of spiritual teachers and teachings that I've been into uh, following for, for, for the last 20 years or more, you know, when we actually go in search of any evidence of this autonomous, volitional, egoic identity, we really can't find it. We, there's no evidence for it. Um, but, and really, you know, it's, it's in, in, in the final analysis, this is just a sort of a narrative, a construct, you know, they, and I noticed it with both of my children growing up, you know, when they were babies before the age of sort of two, two and a half, you'd hold them in front of a mirror and ask them what they saw and they would just go baby. And then around the age of two, two and a half, once they'd identified themselves with consciousness and with a name, that you'd put them in front of the mirror and they would recognize themselves before mm -hmm. that. They were in this sort of oceanic, non-separative, unitive state, which is, you know, analogous, I suppose, to the stage of the sage or the sort of non-dual transpersonal stage. And, uh, you're probably you know, familiar with Ken Wilber's work. Mm. Oh, yes. Ken Wilber, I think, beautifully, uh, you know, shows how all of these different levels within his kind of model of, of, of consciousness. Um, each level integrates but transcends the stage that came before. So the notion that the the stage the sage is a sort of yeah it's 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 likened to the oceanic state of the baby, but obviously it's transcended and integrated all the other stages uh, between being a baby and, and and into adulthood before it's fully constellated in this sort of non-dual uh, reality, which which ultimately underlies everything. So I think it is, we get ourselves into a terrible pickle sometimes by sort of projecting onto the sage all sorts of, 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 of you know, uh, notions that are really just uh, uh, spurious. You know, the, the, I think the sage you know, still has a personality, still has you know, all sorts of traits associated with the mind and body. It's just that the identification or involvement with them has completely been removed. Yeah. As my teacher says, you know, the... the and the best description of enlightenment or the stage of the sage that I've come across is the absence of the false sense of authorship, that we are not actually the author of our thoughts, actions, words, and deeds. Sorry, and I this is sorry. Oh, I was sorry. sneezing, man. I'm sorry. Sorry, no worries. So I, I think, yeah, that's... And I think, you know... The, like the mystical experience, the psychedelic experience yeah, gives one these you know, glimpses of that non-dual state, and you know, the, the, you know, what the science is now you know, suggesting in these these recent fMRI studies, etc, that show how the so-called default mode network, which has become associated with the egoic structure, is repressed by the psychedelic experience. And then all of these other areas of the brain are lit up and there's all sorts of neural connectivity that doesn't normally happen associated with memory and, uh, uh, and all sorts of it, other, other aspects. So it's very similar to Aldous Huxley's notion of, of the brain being like a reducing valve mm. that actually just you know, contains our, our, our identification or, or, you know, of consciousness to a sort of a manageable level. And the psychedelic experience, you know, sort of opens that up. Um, so uh, as does the, the mystical experience. And then we recognize the so-called groundable being, that, we're, that what we are is not limited to this three-dimensional organism, but is actually you know, at, you know, identical with the, with, with the groundable being, with consciousness itself, which is shared. You know, so the brain is, 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 you know, is like the sort of, receiver rather than the transmitter as it were you know, it's, yeah. it's, it, it's, you know, consciousness is is the signal um so that that all makes perfect sense to me it really yeah you know, I, I really you know and so many experiences i've had tally with that as opposed to the notion of, of consciousness being a totally peculiar thing generated in the human brain now that resonates with my experiences as well um one thing that i've kind of been wondering about though and maybe um 
I'm not sure if you know a lot about this, but the the notion that the subconscious, like these are somehow bringing up subconscious aspects of ourself into like the view versus like um, just identifying ourselves as consciousness. So I'm wondering how um, your experiences and your knowledge about DMT and the psychedelic experience um, how that plays a role into the subconscious as well, not just the consciousness, and how the research, um, if any other research is actually focusing on the this notion that the subconscious is actually playing a role in our experiences with the psychedelic experience. No, absolutely. It's a, it's a very good question, and yeah, it's been debated a lot within these gatherings um, as to whether these entities that people encountered, particularly in the DMT space, are... Um, Jungian archetypes that are sort of shared by by um, you know all of humanity potentially. You know why do people from different cultures have um, experience of you know I, I have yes I have an affinity with Eastern religion. I, I, I often see sort of Eastern sort of gods and goddesses in, mm. in these visions and the, these sort of archetypes might correspond to to, to Jungian notions. I and you know that's a certainly a sort of a very plausible um, theory. I similarly, you know, the people have also posited, you know, if, if consciousness is all there is, if the, ultimately the, there is a sort of, if, if you like, there is a pool of consciousness, then within the, that pool of, 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 of infinite consciousness, there could exist you know, an infinite number of, of, of these entities and archetypes and you know when we when we ingest um dmt in such a, an extent you know beyond what's sort of endogenously produced we uh, we open a portal in some way to to you know this wider domain um now it, it certainly would appear often that you know that the ent- the archetypes or entities that appear have got specific information that might relate to that individual. Um, so I, yeah, I, which, which which is is fascinating. So there seems to be a sort of inherent intelligence to to the ayahuasca brew that seems to sort of you know, bring mm, yeah. specific indima- information to the to, to the individual. Um, so I think that's fascinating. I, I mean, the, uh, within our gatherings, people have also proposed that <clears throat> the the entities in this realm are are sort of disincarnate selves, you know, mm-hmm. or disincarnate uh, beings. You know that we that this physical manifestation we emerged out of the you know this DMT space into this physical manifestation, and that we upon death go back into that dimension. Um, I think that's a pretty fascinating hypothesis yeah. that these entities are possibly even our future selves, you know, trying to sort of you know, establish content. Um, then, of course, you know, there's also been you know, Andrew Gallimore brings in the the, the sim- simulation hypothesis, which Elon Musk famously came out in support of a few years ago, which was by you know, this chap Nick Bostrom, who's a you know, very eminent. Uh, uh, AI expert working out of Oxford, you know, this notion that we are, you know, if you're living in a computer simulation, that if there is a tech, if there is a, uh, a civilization that's managed to sort of reach technological maturity and not trigger its own demise, yeah. then it would sort of follow that it would be running multiple computer simulations. Um, I mean, on a sort of a, a sort of logical point of view, I suppose it's hard to sort of, you know, rip that, that down. Um, personally, I suppose I'm sort of I lean more towards a sort of multiverse kind of possibility that you know that somehow these things do these compounds open the door to to, to parallel coexisting dimensions. But there is definitely you know a very high incidence of people feeling that they step into a space, and this goes back to, to your question you know, as to why it's you know, uh, why do people feel it's not, an, you know, consciousness is not a, a, a thing generated in the brain. There's such, so many people feel that the reality they experience is more real than this reality. Mm, yeah. That they've been there before, that there's some sort of overwhelming recognition of coming home, of this is, you know, that this is somewhere that, you know, and, and that those are sort of, you know, 
very, very highly scored, validated, common experiences, you know, amongst people who have been into that realm. So I, I think it's very hard for people who've had the experience to come back and you know, have had that sort of you know breakthrough DMT experience and to have been in that reality, I think it's very hard to come back and maintain that all of this is going on inside your head. Hmm. Um, and uh, you, know, we, you know, I know you know staunch materialist reductionist scientists who've had their worldviews completely transformed as a consequence of this experience because. It is. It, it there is something seemingly so real. This is not like a sort of. I mean, it's been compared to the dreaming state, but it, 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 it's something else uh, altogether. There is a sort of, um, yeah, and th there's a feeling that the people, the beings that you encounter there, are sort of running the show somehow. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> man. Well, um, yeah. you made some great points in there. Um, Specifically, you know, like um, people's experiences uh, described as being more real than real through their process and also the coming home. I, I generally miss that in a lot of people's uh, research and writing. Um, I haven't really noticed a lot of people using that. And but that's a very good point that people generally feel like it's a place that they've always been. The dialogue seems to continue on without them as well, like things are happening without them being the, in the experience, and then they can go back to it and kind of talk to these people as if time had, or these things, if time has moved on. This is a very uh, different thing, like different than just simply having an experience in your head where, um, or a memory, you're kind of like reliving a memory or something like that. It seems like time or things like that is kind of involved into it. So great points, man. Um, I guess the question I had about the culture, you, you have been involved in many different ways with uh, DMT and the culture that surrounds it and very important people, obviously, that you speak with as well as yourself. Um, but how is the culture changed over time? How have you seen this culture surrounding psychedelics and DMT changed over time? And where do you kind of see the culture going in the future? Um, I think it's an interesting question. I think, you know, 10 years ago, few people outside of the sort of hardcore psychedelic community had heard of DMT, um, let alone tried it. Um, obviously, the rise of ayahuasca, and because DMT is the active you know, psychedelic component within our, the ayahuasca brew, has, has brought this molecule to far more people's attention. Um, and there's a lot more sort of research going on around it as a consequence. So I can only see that gathering pace um, alongside all the other research I I into other psychedelic compounds. I suppose, you know, ayahuasca is very hard, to, I think, for, for scientists, empirical scientists to study because it's so variable. Um, I mean, every experience for everybody is always so different. You know, it, it's so extraordinarily unpredictable. Um, you can drink the same brew with the same shaman with, in the same place with the same people 24 hours apart and have completely different experiences. Um, and I think, you know, whether that has an astrological component or something, I, uh, who knows? Um, but it's seemingly, you know, when you, with the DMT in isolation, you can be fairly confident that if you give somebody you know, beyond a certain threshold amount of DMT that they're going to have a pretty astonishing experience. Um, I think the the reason why people have shied away from it in terms of it having much, you know, sort of validity as a sort of a research tool is because of the sort of astonishing, you know, the, the astonishment and the brevity, whereas if, you know, this extended state possibility of, of extrapolating it into a longer journey, I think... Mm. You know that that's a fascinating arena, and you know, I'm sure that's going to go ahead. And and you know we might well you know download some you know some information from that that does have an enormous you know impact on humanity. And I think you know the fact that you know there's there's some evidence that Francis Crick's you know, discovery of the DNA DNA you know, double helix was triggered by a psychedelic experience. Um, 
that uh, you know, Kerry Mullis, I think he was called, who you know, famously you know, he got the Nobel Prize, famously for the polymerase chain reaction, like, uh, PCR or whatever it is, he um, he famously stated that that was entirely precipitated by psychedelics being able to actually sort of you know, you know attune his consciousness to a molecular level. And there's already, I think, with the DMT arena, sort of interesting evidence to suggest that 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 scientists. <clears throat> can go into that space with a specific focus and a question and come back with some interesting information. So I think that's all, you know, it, to be, you know, to be drilled into as, as, as this goes forward. Um, and maybe there will be sort of technological or ecological understandings and breakthroughs that, that, that come out of it. Um, so I think, you know, I see this research, you know, just just building, uh, becoming uh, hopefully more and more relevant. I think that the um, the systemic benefits of, 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 of psychedelic medicine are just becoming more and more apparent. How that is then sort of regulated and brought into society at large is obviously going to be an interesting thing because I'd imagine, you know, for big pharma, it's 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 hard for them to to deal with because uh, it, these things are in the public domain, you can't patent them. Um, and the notion of people sort of getting well in one or two sessions rather than taking a pill for the rest of their lives doesn't really fit with the business model. Hmm. Um, so, um, yeah, there's, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. But I, you know, I hope that in the same way that the fossil fuel industry recognises it's in the energy industry and has got to shift its focus to renewables. Um, I would hate that the pharmaceutical industry can sort of find a way to, to see the wisdom and, and benefits of, of biological plant-based medicines um, and integrate those in a way that, it, that, that works for all. Um, but I, you know, there's definitely going to be some 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 issues around all of that, that that whole process over the coming sort of decade, for sure. Yeah, you just mentioned the issues. Um, that brings a good point. What do you perceive possible issues that could come up through in the next, um, say, 10, 15 years with the uh, research into DMT and uh, psychedelics? What do you perceive maybe cultural issues or... Um, just issues with uh, pharmaceuticals or anything like that. What do you? What's your perception of the future of what these um, things? Yeah, well, I think you know, I think there is going to be. I think it's already throwing up some interesting stuff that, as a culture, we sort of need to address and debate. Not least the fact that I think there's a sort of enculturated notion that any kind of external exogenous compound that we ingest that alters our consciousness must be inherently bad or or inherently toxic and i think you know it's really hard for most people to get their head around the fact that that these these medicines are not only non-addictive but non-toxic as well now you know there is there's mild toxicity from things like mdma and ketamine for example which i wouldn't sort of bracket as sort of traditional psychedelics in the way that but LSD remains, I think, the only compound they've never found the LD50 from, which is the point at which 50% of experimental animals die. Mm. You know, it, it, the, the quantity being ingested, I mean, it's, it's I think, four or 5,000 times more potent than the next most powerful compound known to man. It's, 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 it's completely the complete anomaly. Um, it doesn't seem to be any evidence of, of, of toxicity from it. Um, certainly none from psilocybin, from ayahuasca. You know, one would have to take Herculean you know, a, a, a amounts of these these compounds, you know, beyond possibility for them to have a, a toxic effect. So I think, I think that's an interesting debate that needs to be had when we compare. You know, I mean, I think in the UK alone, one hundred sixty thousand or two hundred thousand deaths a year from alcohol, tobacco, which are the two regulated, taxed, uh, permitted substances within the UK. Um, zero deaths, you know, attributed, you know, directly to, to to any psychedelic, genuine psychedelic compound. No death certificate has ever been written for LSD or psilocybin. Mm. There might have been circumstantial deaths. You know, unfortunate things do happen, um, of course, uh, while people are under the influence of these states. But that's because of you know uh, bad set and setting or or, or whatever. Um, so. 
Um, I'd like to see, you know, I think there's going to be sort of more and more, you know, uh, stuff coming out of, around. And when you look at the, the research done by David Nutt, who famously was, you know, asked by the UK government to do this big study on the relative harm of, of different drugs. Um, and if you look at the, his, the scale he came out with, I mean, the, the drugs that are, you know, right at the top of the scale are the ones that are, legal and sanctioned the ones at the bottom of the scale are the the, the least toxic are the ones that are sort of most profound in terms of sort of triggering kind of profound life-changing sort of mystical experience or psychotherapeutic kind of uh breakthroughs um uh uh and they're the ones that are yeah i mean right at the bottom are the ones that are actually endogenous to the human body you know dmt 5 mg and dmt i mean how the law can actually make a compound that's produced in every human body illegal is is still a mystery to me. Um, yeah, because we're all manufact making this compound all the time at every moment. Um, it's an absurdity, um, and the fact yeah that, that that these things remain in sort of Schedule One and sort of considered as dangerous or more dangerous than things like crack cocaine and methamphetamine, you know, it's just yeah you know, you know, absurd. So, um, but I think yeah, so there's there's a we're going to see a massive change, I, I believe, culturally, uh, politically, uh, around the way we deal with, with with stimulants in our society. The recreational, I think we have to sort of look at that. I think the word recreate, recreation has, has been given, is stigmatised for being sort of uh, an inherently sort of negative mm. pursuit. But I don't think there's anything, you know, uh, inherently wrong with some of these substances being used recreationally in a safe way, by you know, in a safe and sensible way. There are some, you know, I can't, it's hard to see anyone ever wanting to use ayahuasca in a recreational way. <laughs> um, there's nothing sort of, you know, recreational about it. Um, but I think, you know, responsible recreational use of sort of low dose LSD and psilocybin, you know, that you know the, the studies from microdosing is a sort of overwhelmingly positive about the impact on on people's mental well being, on their performance, on their ability to overcome depressions and addiction and the rest of it. Um, and these are massive, massive issues within our society. And, and not, you know, I mean, the opiate crisis in the in the US, which is absolutely, you know, ninety people a day dying from uh, from the opiate crisis. I mean, this is absolutely appalling and yeah and the, the the possibilities for for ibogaine from from the aboga route for dealing with opioid dependencies is overwhelming um but ibogaine for treating a whole host of things you know microdosing ibogaine has now been shown to reverse parkinson's symptoms hmm. wow. um yeah all of these things have been shown to have <clears throat> tremendous benefits for sort of d- dementia for because of promoting neural connectivity and neural plasticity you know we're able to sort of rewire our brains to, to to overcome embedded sort of trauma addictive patterns um so uh you know with depression singled out by i think the world health organization as being sort of you know this one of the probably the most debilitating condition worldwide and i think you know sort of you know half of the world is predicted to be depressed by 2020 <laughs> or something at current rates i mean it's just appalling so the, the mental health implications and the fact that you know, it's so apparent that, that, that SSRIs don't do what people thought they did. You know, I think at best the evidence is they work 10% better than the placebo <laughs> in 10% of cases um, and quite often make people worse and create a, a dependency which is very hard to get out of. So um, I think, you know... The, yeah, the, the, these are big conversations, you know, and, and uh, but the, the, uh, they're being had. Uh, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that, and it's, it's good to see that. Yeah, definitely, man. Um, so tell me, tell me a little bit about your book, uh, DMT Dialogues. I'm, I'm really interested to understand how you got these these people together. Why did you get these people together? And also, your um, you talked a bit about your initiative. The um, I'm, I don't know how to say it correctly. The try. Terringham, yeah. So, Terringham. what's that all about, man? Terringham, it's it, Terringham Hall is a beautiful house 
in uh, about an hour north of London, built by a, a great British architect called Sir John Soane in the late 18th century. And it really is the sort of quintessential English country uh, estate. I mean, it's, it's an enormous house. And my friend and colleague, Anton, um, bought it, uh, uh, I think, around 2000. Uh, it was in bad disrepair. And he restored it meticulously, beautifully, lived in it for many years. Um, but had sort of had moved to Ibiza, where where I know where we both live, uh, about eight years ago. So when I started working with him four years ago, <clears throat> we wanted to see if we could actually turn it into an institute, a retreat centre hmm. that would, you know, ta- you know, really kind of you know tackle, you know, a lot of these er- areas, but just you know, consciousness at large, you know, not specifically DMT and right. psychedelics, but sort of ecological stuff and consciousness research generally. Um, and to cut a long story short, I mean, it just, it, for various reasons within his you know, professional life, there was there were too many uncertainties and the, he ended up being forced to, to put the house on the market and we sold, he sold it at the end of last year. But we did have, we, we gave birth to this initiative. Uh, there, it obviously was an amazing platform to be able to reach out to people and invite them to come and stay in these incredible surroundings and sort of out of the sort of public eye, as it were, so that they could really sort of think out of the box. Mm. Um, And the intention was to make it as, you know, as pluralistic and multidisciplinary as possible so that we didn't have... um, So we had everybody from, you know, ethnopharmacologists to cosmologists to... Uh, religious historians, um, et cetera, et cetera. So the <clears throat> the book was the first uh, event. It was in September 2015, so almost exactly three years ago. And it took place over three days, and there were 10 presentations mm-hmm. from um, Graham Hancock, and Rupert Sheldrake, Dennis McKenna, Jeremy Narby, who wrote Cosmic Serpent, Eric Davis, Andrew Gallimore, who I've just spoken about, uh, Graham St. John, who wrote a wonderful book about the sort of cultural history of DMT. Um, Edie Freshka, who's a Hungarian um, uh, researcher um, in, in this arena, um, uh, as well as one or two others uh, who I can't remember. <laughs> uh, 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 but it, the presentations were then all transcribed uh, and turned into this book that, that edited uh, that David Luke and I edited together. Um, I hope that you know, if the book does well, there's a second volume there from the second gathering we orchestrated last year. Mm. Uh, and then we were just, after the launch of the book in New York, um, just two weeks ago, we were up at Alex and Alison Gray, um, uh, the, the visionary artists up at their place, Cosm, the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors in upstate New York. And we had another two-day brainstorm gathering oh, there yeah. as well. Uh, with a particular focus on coming up with ideas for experiments and really trying to sort of hone in on what <clears throat> the practical uh, methodologies would be for, for taking this all further. So let's see. I, hopefully there might be a volume two and a volume three in there as well. Nice. Yeah. Um, I mean, what what is kind of the future for you um, with not just with these books, but how are you? I mean, you've mentioned the research behind like um, giving people experiences in actual research um, settings, is that kind of something you're involved in or is that, are you kind of observing this? Well, I'm less involved with the, with the, <clears throat> the ongoing research um, and um, you know, Anton and, and David Luke are, are much more sort of in the driving seat with all of that. Um, I, I will continue to sort of work with them and put on events in this area, but I still have a big sort of ecological focus. I'm now very busy with a three-day festival here in Ibiza with a focus on um, ecological farming and sort of you know e- ecological food systems uh, regenerative agriculture localized food economies all of that sort of thing which is very dear to my heart I was a chef many years ago my project in Sri Lanka was very much around sort of permaculture principles of edible landscapes and the rest of it but I think what I'd like to doing that together with more of this kind of stuff. So I'm working again with, on a three-day festival in the UK next year, which is called Medicine, which is really trying to highlight all of these role models for sort of systems change in areas from 
um, health, you know, biological medicine, through to farming, you know, regenerative farming, um, circular economics, uh, new design methodologies, you know, like biomimicry, cradle to cradle design. Mm-hmm. So, I think you know we are, the, you know, I, I, I'm a great believer that we need a sort of a, a, a systems upgrade across the board. And we can't just sort of, you know, incrementally keep optimizing systems that are fundamentally broken and don't, and just aren't relevant to our times. You know, we have an economic system that was really, you know, appropriate maybe 150 years ago, but is simply, you know, it was designed with very different parameters. You know, with 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 an apparent resource abundance rather than resource scarcity, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we can't just sort of change one component without changing the whole lot. You know, my brother's a, a hydrogen fuel cell engineer and has designed a, a fairly revolutionary bit of technology with a, a company called River Simple in the UK. But he's fond of, of, of this expression. It was a, a, an English prime minister, David Lloyd George, who famously said, you can't cross a chasm in two leagues. Um, and I think, you know, we have to, you know, in Buckminster Fuller, you know, famously said, you can, we can't change you can't change the existing reality by fighting. You have to build a new model that makes the existing mm. model obsolete. So what I'm very interested in is highlighting the new models across the board, whether it's in healthcare, such as psychedelic medicine, or um, you know, regenerative farming in the sort of you know, uh, food and farming sector, um, but also new models of governance, new ways that we sort of, you know, we have to get away from sort of traditional sort of hierarchical models and embrace sort of, you know, network models we need to be informed by the inherent intelligence of, of, of nature and natural systems you know we need to look at how ecosystems work the reciprocity within an ecosystem its ability to self-regulate and self-adapt um, as complexity increases um, so i think you know the the, the old model yeah you know, we, we're going to see the old model yeah we already see it crumbling um and I think, you know, uh, having been an activist for many years, I did sort of get to the point of realising that a lot of our engagement with fighting the existing paradigm is potentially energy wasted when the energy is probably better diverted into building the new models that are, that are going to replace the old when they crumble um, and really making those more visible and making them, you know, you know more practical so mm-hmm. that people... And that is, you know, people will jump ship and get on board, you know, things that they see working in the same way that people are going to choose these medicines now as opposed to SSRIs or, or, or conventional notions of psychotherapy. You know, people who've been battling with depression for decades, uh, uh, you know, finding they have incredible results in one night with an ayahuasca session and the rest of it. So I think, you know, the, that's an example um and i hope that you know we'll see similar kind of things happen across the board you know politically economically agriculturally industrially and the rest of it and as we we all know we're in perilous times yeah man you have a great view of the future man and the hope for it so (laughs) i I appreciate that (laughs) it might be naive and idealistic but i suppose i i find i have to sort of stay sort of positive and hopeful otherwise i just sort of yeah, I, I, I suffocate. Yeah, I mean, there's too much negativity yeah. around the future anyways for most people. So I think I think we could use a couple well, of positive absolutely. people. <laughs> that, 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 that is the role. The mainstream media doesn't want to sort of highlight positive success yeah. stories and role models. It likes to sort of draw attention to yet another doom and gloom report about climate change. But I mean, yeah, we all know that the, the, the problem is, is out of control. Um but, you know, as I've been, you know, my books and campaigning, I've said for 25 years now, and, I, you know, there were plenty of people saying all of this long before I was, you know, the, the models are there. Um, you know, they're they, numerous, amazing solutions already exist. Hmm. Um, you know, if, if various renewable technologies had had the sort of level of, R&D funding that the nuclear industry has had for the last 50 years, we'd be in a sort of you know, carbon-free world. Um, but I think, you know, there's the, 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 you know, that's a whole, that's again, you know, another 
area that I, I feel needs to be addressed and is potentially informed again by the psychedelic experience. We, we're so locked into this polarized binary way of looking at things. And the, the world doesn't work like that. Nature doesn't work like that. And in the UK, the debate is, you know, either we cover the country in wind farms or, or, or nuclear power stations. It's just not, it's just, it's just a, a pure our way of looking at things. You know, what's relevant in the side west of the country in Cornwall is not relevant to up in the north of Scotland. You know, yeah. it's, we need decentralized energy industries. We need, you know, a decentralized uh, you know, governance systems. We need decentralized, you know, localized food economies and, and agricultural systems. We need this notion that, you know, we need state-controlled, centralized energy industries and massive monocultures to feed the world is inherently flawed. And now, you know, the focus is going, you know, is on geoengineering to solve the climate crisis. Hmm. But, you know, there are so many biological systems that would be infinitely more efficient at sequestering carbon from the atmosphere and mitigating climate change than, you know, all this nonsense about, you know, releasing billions of tonnes of sulphur dioxide into the atmosphere with completely unknown consequences. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, yeah, we, we, yeah, we've got to get over this notion that the, 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 the technologists are going to solve this for us. It's If we're going to solve the problem, it's through nature hmm. and recognising, uh, you, know, you know, these these are systems that have had a three-point eight billion year evolution to, to get as sophisticated as they are. Um, and as the science, you know, as people now study, you know, leaves on trees for, to replicate the efficiency within a photovoltaic cell or whatever it may be, we need to um, recognize that, you know, if we, if we started farming appropriately, um, we could sequester carbon. If we, if we, you know, help to, you know, rebuild marine biodiversity with you know as tim flannery's pointed out with sort of you know his notion of, of you know if we help to rebuild seaweed in the world's oceans you know we we could systemically solve all sorts of issues but of course the focus is going on 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 onto technology and, and